This is Software Engineering Radio, the podcast for professional developers on the web at se-radio.net. SE Radio brings you relevant and detailed discussions and interviews on software engineering topics every two weeks. Thanks to our audience and the partners listed on our website for supporting the podcast. So, welcome listeners to this new episode of Software Engineering Radio. This is once again a language episode, and as I, I think mentioned a number of times before, these are some of my, you know, the, the episodes I probably like most. So, this time we're going to talk about closure, and our guest is, well, Mr. Closure Rich Hickey. Hi. Hi. Uh, thanks for being on the show. Um, well, why don't you introduce yourself before we're talking about your creation? Uh, well, I'm Rich Hickey, and I wrote Closure. Uh, Closure is a dynamic programming language for the JVM. It also runs on the CLR. Uh, has sort of four primary characteristics. It's a uh, it's um, it's a Lisp. Mm -hmm. It's it's designed to be hosted, so it has an intimate relationship with the host platform. You know, for instance, the JVM. Uh, it's mostly functional, so it has an emphasis on immutability and pure functions and immutable data structures. And uh, it has uh, another focus on concurrency. Mm -hmm. So all the aspects of the language were designed to uh, have meaningful semantics in the context of a concurrent program. Okay, and we're going to explore that later. Um, I just wanted to uh, make our listeners aware that we've had an episode on Lisp before. I just checked. It was episode 84 with Dick Gabriel. So um, while we're probably going to talk about Lisp basics shortly or briefly here, we're not going to do a full introduction to Lisp. We probably won't have the time. So if you're not familiar with Lisp, Lisp at least, you know, generally, then you should go back to episode 84. Um, so I guess, um, nonetheless, Rich, it would be a good idea if you introduced a Lisp um, Basically, what are the fundamentals of Lisp? How is Lisp different from other languages? And, and maybe why is it special, as many people would probably say? Uh, okay, well, that last point is probably, the last question is probably the best one, because you know, many of the things that Lisp innovated uh, have you know, become available, widely available in programming languages. I think, uh, I think the thing that still makes Lisp unique is that um, programs are presented to the compiler in the forms of uh, data structures. Mm -hmm. So a Lisp compiler does not compile text, it compiles data structures. And when you do write a program uh, in a Lisp like Clojure, um, you write it in terms of uh, writing literal, uh, literal data structures. So if you do place text in a file, what you do is you, you place the, um, text that contains uh, data literals. So, so, but how is this different from a programming language that parses some kind of text and builds an AST, which is also a data structure, and then feeds it into the compiler? Uh, well, it has a lot to do with whether or not that AST uh, is made up of, of the kinds of things your program normally manipulates. Ah. So, in a, in a Lisp program, and particularly in Clojure, the data literals are, are the things that you use every day, vectors and maps. Mm -hmm. uh, and lists. And so there's a huge library of things for working with them. It's not a special library for working with an AST tree. It's the regular data processing library of the language, which means that you don't need to write special or unusual code to manipulate 
the AST, you write ordinary data processing code. So you could say that programming and metaprogramming is the same thing. Exactly. They're no different. And, uh, and that, really, that really matters. I mean, if you've ever worked with, uh, with an AST library that presents an object-oriented approach to an AST, you, you realize you're writing you know, to a very particular API. Um, and when you write macros in Clojure or a Lisp, you, uh, you're writing very ordinary data structure processing code. Mm -hmm. So uh, what are the, the, the data structures that are used? You already mentioned, I think, vectors and lists, right? So you, a Lisp program is basically a set of nested lists. Is that, is that right? Um, that was true for Lisps traditionally. Uh, for Clojure, uh, there are several other data structures that have the same first-class status as mm -hmm. Lisps do. Okay. Um, that would be vectors and maps, which are like hash tables. Right. Um, and so there are forms in the, in the syntax of the language, which is, again, defined in terms of these data structures that utilize uh, vectors in particular and sometimes maps. Mm -hmm. So you alluded to it, and I guess it's also obvious from episode 84, um, Lisp isn't new. Lisp is a quite old approach, and it has been used successfully in some domains but it hasn't has never really you know gotten mainstream so i guess do you do you have an opinion why it never got mainstream and then of course the related question is why why did you you know implement your own lisp in 2000 and i don't know eight nine or ten <laughs> um well those are two separate questions so why know, yeah. Did lisp, yeah why did lisp never catch on uh, as a mainstream language uh i'm not sure it was designed to be a mainstream language. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think at the time it came up, it was, it was uh, really designed around super, you know, super users, researchers, and very smart people who are trying to solve very hard problems. Yeah. And, and Lisp sort of maximally leveraged their efforts. You know, you could sit in a Lisp environment, and as a, an individual person, you had an incredible amount of, of power. Um, I think we all know that Programming in the large is more of a social activity now that involves other people. It involves libraries. It's particularly critical to be able to interoperate with things other people have done, either in the same or in different languages. Mm -hmm. And so that's an area where Lisp didn't do as well traditionally, uh, because these boxes and the approach were, you know, they were like islands. They were very nice islands with great, <laughs> pretty trees and beautiful views. Yeah. Um, but not well connected, I, I would say, to the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. um, there are some other, you know, social and and historic reasons that have to do with artificial intelligence and and its its demise in the eighties and nineties, um, which and being tied to that meant Lisp sort of uh, lost favor when AI did, mm -hmm. um, but it never lost its power. Um, so to get to your second question. Uh, why would I do this today? Uh, the 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 uh, second half of the feature I wanted to describe is still being unique to Lisp is because the the programs are, are represented in data structures. It means you can write programs that write programs. Mm -hmm. And and the the second key aspect of of a Lisp is that when the compiler is evaluating your program, um, it gives uh, your other your macros, which are also small programs, the opportunity to run during the compilation process. 
which means that your program writing programs can be integrated with the compiler. Yeah, I think that's that's a very important aspect because it's really not a big problem to write a program program that uses, let's say, the the, the Eclipse AST API to, to right. create a Java program. It might not be as simple as lists, but, well, I guess that's a matter of taste, but the ability to plug it in into the transformation or compilation process that's and, and make it kind of seamless by that, that's that's important. Right. So that, that enables a feature called... Uh, you know, syntactic extensibility. And uh, that's a powerful thing. It's important for programs in the same way that, you know, function abstraction is important. You know, we don't want to keep writing the same things over and over again. Right. We want to write them once and reuse them. And so there are many patterns in software that can't be well encapsulated by objects and methods. Uh, the simplest example would be in a Java program, you know, the, the try block and the kinds of... Yeah. of frequently occurring patterns that you have to write over and over because you have no tools for encapsulating them in something uh, that eliminates the repetition. Yeah. So, so yeah, go ahead. Yeah. So that, I consider that to be an extremely valuable thing and, and worth pursuing still. Uh, so what I wanted to do was make a Lisp that retained what was powerful about Lisp, but addressed the island problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so, so closure in being, in being hosted and and ha- being on a host, uh, not being an implementation detail, you know, yeah. merely the fact, but but something that's a, a feature um, and and exposed is really important, and because that means that now, uh, as a new language, for instance, Clojure has full access to all of the Java libraries. Mm-hmm. Um, it has a great ability to interact with Java programs, and uh, you're immediately off the island. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, well, <laughs> um, I'll get back to that later. I just want to return again to 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 the briefly to this meta programming stuff. Um, sure. You said that syntactic extensibility is an important uh, concern and and you know measure of the power of a language like Lisp. Now, if I would play devil's advocate, I would say Lisp has no syntax. I mean, if you represent everything as lists, then if then it's of course simple to you know represent everything as lists. So, and of course, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but what I'm trying to get at is, is it, imp- well, the fact that Lisp is so extensible regarding its syntax, you know, the growing a language thing that Guy Steele had a while ago, is that because the syntax is so kind of trivial and almost non-existent? I mean, it's not so easy to, to be able to do that with Java, for example, independent of the metaprogramming facilities. So how important is the syntactic simplicity to be able to do what you described? Uh, you know, it, it, the argument is that it's 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 pretty important. Um, there aren't many metaprogramming systems um, as f- easy to use as Lisps. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think it it's about list. Everything is a list. In fact, everything is not a list enclosure. I know you said it before. I'm exaggerating yeah. a little bit. Yeah, and and I think it's important because uh, there's a sense in which when everything is a list, um, it's actually a little bit more complex. Right, because that means lists are more overloaded. Mm-hmm. Um, because there is there is a syntax. Um, it's not actually in the character representation very much. Right, the characters are yeah. just used to represent the data structures. Yeah. But then there's a syntax in terms of you know what is the interpretation of the data structures. Mm-hmm. 
and that's where the syntax that's where the syntax lies more on token level instead of on character level if you will well yeah tokens and and even bigger you know lists and and nested vectors and things like that right so that's where the syntax lies i think the fact that um that the syntax is data structures and when you write a transformer you produce new data structures again these very simple um built-in common data structures uh Mm -hmm does make the metaprogramming much, much simpler. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. So you, you mentioned that, you know, the, the target audience of, of, of classic Lisps back then being the, you know, the scientists who does AI stuff. Um, who is the target audience of Clojure? Is it really like Joe Java developer or is it also, you know, do, do you think they would like a Lisp-like language? I mean, who, who did you target it at? I... I I, I think any programmer with a sufficiently open mind uh, will find working with a Lisp a, a thrilling and tremendously fun experience. Mm-hmm. That was my that was my experience. You know, I, I had you know more than a dozen years of C and Java and C Sharp, and uh, Lisp is just tremendously enabling. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, I, and I think that. Many of the many people's initial reservations about Lisp are are very superficial. I agree, yeah. Um, because at the core, for instance, Clojure is much, much, much simpler than Java. Uh, so once you can see that, um, you say, "Wow, this it's simpler and potentially at least more succinct, but potentially more yeah. powerful." I guess there are the. I think the discussion that people have around this is probably maybe that there are two different notions of simplicity. I mean, you could say that Lisp is simple because it has a very simple syntax only consisting of the couple of abstractions you mentioned before and then it's very orthogonal. You can kind of, you know, write code that writes code that writes code and stuff. But the other person would say Java is simpler because I'm guided more. I have more specific language constructs. So I'm not I'm not so out in the cold. I'm I'm much more you know, guided along a predefined path, and that can also be interpreted as some kind of simplicity. So, I don't know what I'm going to say. What I what, what I wanted to say. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, you know, I I think that um, most of that people's simplicity there is is a matter of familiarity. Yeah, I, I think when you take somebody off the street and you and you show them hello world in Java. Yes. Uh, if you really try to explain every line of of that program. Yes. You would realize how complex Java is. We've just yes. become comfortable with that, but it's not simple at all. I agree. And, and I was and, and, and when I'm talking about the simplicity of, of, of a Lisp and, and closure in particular, I'm not talking about syntactic simplicity, although that's there. Yeah. I'm talking about the, the lack of implicit complexity. Yeah. Uh, which is really where we suffer. Right. Yeah, I agree. I, I have to say, I, I don't have any practical experience with, lisp, with Lisps, but um, I, I, I can see what you're saying, and I would actually like to, to do some, you know, spend four weeks and do something meaningful with Lisp to, to get some experience. Um, two weeks ago, we had a little uh, open space conference about DSLs, and we got together, 10 people talked about different tools and languages and facilities to build domain-specific languages, and one person showed a couple of Lisp examples you know martin Fowler's state machine example and lisp and it it is very elegant so i i can really imagine or i can i can understand what you're saying i just can't appreciate it from my own experience that's why i might sound a little bit skeptical but it's it's really just <laughs> I, i don't mean it that way <laughs> yeah i think uh you know 
I, I absolutely acknowledge the familiarity uh, aspect is important and and is an impediment. Yeah. Uh, that that people need to get past if they're going to discover what's possible. Yeah. Uh, but it is more a matter of familiarity than it is simplicity. Yeah, it's funny. I I have the same. I I use the same arguments when I try to convince people of, let's say, using MPS projectional editor uh, to write code instead of a normal ASCII editor. And I also say, you have to believe that at the other end, every, the grass is much, much greener and you have <laughs> to go through this pain. So <laughs> I guess it's, uh, yeah. Yeah. So what's different from normal Lisps or classical Lisps? You already mentioned the fact that it's very well integrated and explicitly integrated with the VM. And I guess we'll talk about that in, in a minute. But from a language perspective, what's different from, from Lisps? Two, two things are the primary differences. Uh, one is uh, in traditional Lisps, the core data structures are mutable. Okay. So they have, you know, con cells to represent lists. And, and people should be aware that, you know, like common Lisp has vectors and it has arrays and it has uh, hash tables and, and, you know, all the yep. modern data structures. Yep. But they're all mutable. Mm -hmm. So uh, that's an area where, for instance, um, because I wanted the prime data structures, primary data structures to be immutable, I couldn't retrofit closure on top of, say, scheme or common lisp. Right. Uh, the second area in which uh, closure differs is that you know lisp is very old, <laughs> and, <laughs> yes. and and scheme is very old, and they actually predate some modern concepts like um, interfaces and uh, and polymorphic uh, API design. Because they, you know, they came from before, you know, Lisp innovated in areas as simple as having, you know, conditionals. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, uh, so closure has uh, an API design that's built upon abstractions. So, where in a traditional Lisp, you know, there's a library of functions for dealing with lists. They really were hardwired to a particular data structure. Similarly, there were, you know, you know, uh, functions for dealing with vectors and with maps, and they. They were they work specifically with the concrete data structure supplied with the language. Mm -hmm. In Clojure, there are abstractions behind all of the data structures, and all of the library code is written in terms of these abstractions. So you can imagine them to be Java interfaces, right? Uh, and they are in fact Java interfaces under the hood. Mm -hmm. uh, that means that the entire sequence library works with anything that's remotely sequential or or could provide <laughs> a sequential view. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's a big deal because now you get uh, far greater leverage out of library code right, right. than you would otherwise. So those are the two biggest differences, that the, the core data structures are immutable and the, the built-in library is built in terms of abstractions and not concrete data structures. Mm -hmm. And I guess, so, I mean, common Lisp had object orientation, although in a somewhat different way than we typically know it from mainstream languages today. Do you have that too? Can you define classes in 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 in, uh, in closure and and how are they different from Java classes or maybe they aren't? So so how do you go about that? There are there are sort of two things that you can do. One is you can define classes and interfaces that are in fact Java classes and interfaces, mm -hmm. um, and that's there for interoperability. Um, it's also there as an abstraction tool um, in the becoming versions of closure. There are these things I call protocols, which mm -hmm. are, they're kind of like Java interfaces um, with the benefit being that you could extend an existing class for which you do not, you know, over which you don't have control to participate in a protocol, mm -hmm. whereas an interface requires you derive. Yeah. 
Um, and so that will be the main abstraction mechanism. Uh, that's still not an object-oriented orient system for closure in, in the same respects as you traditionally think of objects. I mean, most people think of objects as mutable, stateful yes. things. And so closure still won't provide that except via the, the Java interop. Mm -hmm. Okay. So the, um, the basic abstractions you're going to create in, in, in Clojure is basically data structures and functions that work on them. Correct. But with protocols, you still have the ability to, to define sets of functions yep. as abstractions with names and get polymorphic behavior. Right. Okay. So I like polymorphism, and I think it can be you know pried out of object orientation and delivered a la carte. So in that sense, those, those protocols would kind of act as an adapter then to other data structures that don't yet implement the behavior directly? Uh, they are like adapters, except they do not require wrappers. Ah, okay. So there is some compiler magic going on. Um, yeah. Okay. Um, which leads me to the question, which I kind of already answered. Um, it's compiled, right? It's not interpreted. Correct. There's no interpreter enclosure. So uh, have you... you you still get dynamic code loading and you have a REPL. Uh, it's just that everything is compiled as it's loaded. REPL means read, evil, print loop, right? Right, read, evil, print loop. Eval, so that's yeah, your evil. interactive you know, <laughs> yeah. interface. Yeah. So have you done any performance uh, measurements comparing uh, Clojure with, say, Java? Uh, yeah. Yeah. In terms of calling normal methods... Um, Closure is the same speed as Java. It emits the same bytecode. Right, okay. Um, the big performance difference uh, with Java is that in Clojure, uh, in, in normal Clojure code, numbers are always boxed. Mm -hmm. So you're always getting the big I integer, yep. big L long. Um, so that has performance overhead. Um, and, that, and obviously math with that is slower. Arithmetic with that is slower. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, however, inside a function, um, you can declare uh, primitives, like you know, int and long, and yep. exactly the same as Java. And the arithmetic with those can be made, you know, the same as Java's. Right. Uh, of course, there are different levels. You know, by default, a Lisp has automatic promotion of of integers to as large a data type as is required to hold yep. the result. Yeah. Uh, and Clojure offers three flavors of arithmetic. One, one that does that. One that does native primitive arithmetic, but with um, overflow checking, which is still safe. Yep. And the third kind is, you know, essentially <laughs> bad, <laughs> which is what Java does. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Java has silent overflow, so right. yeah. um, if you want that, that's the fastest possible thing, and it's available in Clojure. Mm -hmm. Okay. So. Um I guess we should talk a little bit about uh, Clojure's approach to concurrency because, first of all, I guess concurrency is an interesting topic these days in general. And you said that that was a motivation or was one of the important characteristics of, of Clojure. So um, I guess one aspect of you know being concurrency-friendly is the thing you mentioned before, uh, immutable data structures, right? Can you, can, you, can you elaborate briefly on that? Sure, I would. I would definitely want to start start there. You know, I think um, in the broadest sense, Clojure's approach to data structures and object orientation and concurrency um, all are all tied together, and they have to do with. Uh, they're all born of a frustration of 
dealing with state. Okay. You know, I, I think I saw your talk about time, right? I, I think there yes. was QCon or where was it? Sure. That was at the JBM Language ah, Summit. JBM Language Summit. Okay. Yeah. Right. So, yeah, I mean, the, the, that's what's really, that's what closure is really about. Uh, you know, even if you don't have concurrency, I think that large object oriented programs struggle with with increasing complexity as you build this large object graph of mutable objects in in really you know trying to understand and and keep in your mind what will happen when you call a method and what will the side effects be and you know where will it have impact so and, um, and that's just simply because things have side effects or are you uh, referring to something more 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 i don't know more strange no i'm talking about mutable objects right okay as simple a thing as you know, if you're given a mutable object, you know, can you maintain a reference to it? Yeah. Um, yeah. As 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 a, as a value, you know, can you go back to it later and know that it will be the same value, represent yeah. the same value? Those concepts are are merged together in object-oriented programming yeah. languages, and and there's a sense in which that's broken. I think what you what you called it in your in your presentation at the languages summit was the distinction between state and identity. Am I correct? Correct. Okay. Yeah. That's right. So, so the identity remains the same over time, but the state yeah. and the value of something changes. Correct. And if, if you're able to obtain those values, it means that you're able to make a huge portion of your program uh, independent of, of the identities and, and the change part. So in other words, you would store values and not identities. That's right. You can remember values quite easily and you can perform computations on them uh, without worry. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And and we should do that more. Uh, you know, I think the fact that when we start in an object-oriented language and we make a class and we get mutable fields by default, um, we're, we, we have far more mutation than we require. Yeah. And it takes an incredible amount of discipline to, to remove that. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah. Clojure takes the opposite approach and says, you know, let's start with programming with values, mm -hmm. which don't change, and do as much as we can with that. And then, and only then, when we need, you know, an identity, um, we'll deal with that independently again, trying to make orthogonal decisions about about things. So, uh, so we start with uh, how do we program with values, mm -hmm. which goes to your first question, which is, you know, what, you know, how do you represent things that are bigger than you know numbers yeah. and strings as as values? You need efficient data structures for representing collections, for mm -hmm. instance, as values, yeah. or e even small ones that would have been objects. And so Clojure comes with a suite of data structures that are, they're called persistent data structures. Mm -hmm. uh, persistence doesn't have anything to do with being stored on a, on a disk. Uh, in this case, what persistence means is that uh, a data structure is immutable. It means that if you were going to do something that would change it, what you're really going to do is produce a new version of it. Mm-hmm. A copy, uh, that, basically. Excuse me. A copy, basically. Copy well, on chains. Well, no, no, because then the next the next feature of a persistent data structure is that the data structures have uh, performance guarantees. You know, the big O guarantees that you would expect. Okay. Uh, so if the big O guarantee of a data structure is that you can add something to it in log right. n time. But let, let, let me let me try to say it differently. It feels semantically like a copy, but it's not a brute force duplication of the data structure. But there is rather some more clever stuff going on exactly that's okay. that's the real key and yes. but the thing is it needs to be said because 
people's first intuition is that yes. this will require copying. Yes. And that can't be made efficient. And that, that's not what's happening. So persistent data structures, uh, you make a new version. The new version uh, can be made while meeting the performance guarantees. So that already implies that it's not a copy. Mm-hmm. Yep. Right? Because if it promised log in and you, it had to copy, that would be linear time. Yes. Um, the other attributes of a persistent data structure is that the old version is still available. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not destroyed, nor is it degraded. So the performance of the old version is as good as it ever was. Mm-hmm. Uh, because there are schemes for, for doing persistence that sort of have the old versions degrade over time. Uh, by, I don't know why. Be- would because, that... of, because of the way the sh- structural sharing might work. Ah, okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so the first class persistent data structure the old versions are as good as the latest version. Okay. Uh, and when you have all of those things, you have a completely different you know, tool in your hand for doing programming. Mm-hmm. Uh, remembering values is easy. Um, storing you know, undo stacks is cheap. Mm-hmm. Uh, doing speculative work uh, in a recursive fashion is inexpensive. And uh, dealing with concurrency is easy because these values are immutable. They don't require any locking or anything else to be used in a concurrent context. Mm-hmm. So um, I guess it's worth spending five more minutes on this persistent data structure thing because I kind of almost forget about it. And as you remember, <laughs> it's not in the it's not in the agenda, but it's a very important point. So so assume I have let's say an expression just to make it simple. I have an expression that multiplies two with the prod- with the sum of two other numbers, like two times three plus four. Just so we have okay. some kind of tree-like data structure. Okay. And now I replace the the four, you know, the two times three plus four. I replace the four with a five. So right. trivially, I'd have to copy the whole data structure, and that's not what's going on. So can you briefly explain how this magic works so that you get a copy and don't copy? Uh, well, if we take the the simplest persistent data structure, would be a singly linked list. Mm-hmm. So if if uh, if um, if I had a singly linked list that was A, B, and C, and um, and you wanted to uh, prepend, yep. you know, X, you could make a new node, right? X, and you could have its tail point to my list, right? In that case, it's trivial. Yes, I agree. Right. So, but the important note there is that there's structural sharing. Mm-hmm. Right, your list shares its tail with my entire list, mm-hmm. and because I can never change anything, that can never be a problem regarding you know something changed over here. Exactly. That's so. That's the other. That's the other key thing is that because I can't change my list. Yes. Right. Uh, I can't. I can't harm your list. Right. 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 Mm-hmm. So to scale this concept to any other data structure, you move from a list to a tree. Yep. And basically, all of the closure data structures that would be you know, hash, hash maps or vectors are represented as trees. Mm-hmm. So as soon as you've got it represented as a tree, it means that, you know, you only need to uh, copy the path to the part of the tree that you're changing. Right. As opposed to the entire tree. For instance, if you represented a vector as an array, yeah, you would have no hope but to have to copy the entire array. Right. I mean, in some sense, you can see a tree as uh, a set <clears throat> as a number of linked lists in the sense that every node doesn't just have one tail but many tails and that gives you a tree you can of course the implementation doesn't work that no, way no 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 but but mentally right, yeah. right yeah. exactly well that's that's why i started with the list because right. good. it is good. essentially 
it's you you have chains of things right and as soon as you have a tree structure then modifying any leaf in the tree yes. only requires copying the path to the root right mm-hmm. and nothing else and the new tree shares everything with the old tree except that one path mm-hmm. so closures data structures are are trees of arrays uh, so they have a very high branching factor and they're very shallow mm-hmm. and uh, that ends up being very fast mm-hmm. um, Okay, and that's how they work. <laughs> Good. So, so I guess that's the the whole thing about um, immutability, which, right. again, if you don't share anything that is mutable, you don't have to lock. So you remove all the locking issues immediately. Right. But then, of course, people will say that if you never change anything, how how sensible can a program be? So I guess at some point you need to be able to change some things. I mean, a database is something that changes. So how do you deal with? I mean, do you deal with data that changes, and and if so, how? Yes. Well, that that's really the key. That's the key thing about closures that uh, it makes no attempt, and it doesn't purport to say that you could write programs with only pure functions and immutable data. Yeah. Uh, because they, you know, uh, realistic programs that that operate over extended periods of time and get input from the outside world and interact with the outside world do have state. Yeah. So so how do you do that? Uh, and the key uh, the key thing is to realize the difference between the value and uh, and and the the notion of an identity, right? Mm-hmm. Which is something you might talk about over time. So the example I'll use here is. Uh, imagine a program that has people log in and out over the course of it running. Mm-hmm. The set of logged in users is a is a collection. Mm-hmm. Um, in a traditional program, you might consider that to be something that's mutable, the collection itself. Right. So when somebody logs in, you would actually you know change that collection, and that ends up being a big problem because now you have the possibility that somebody was looking at the old version and mm-hmm. iterating over it, and now they get a concurrent, you know, a modification exception. Yep. Uh, or you, so then you have all these difficulties. So, but what's really happening is that there's this identity, which is the the thing you're naming, right? The set of logged in users yep. is an idea. Yep. 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 And at any particular point in time, it has a value. So. If you represent those values as immutable collections, then all you really need to do is ensure sequential uh, a sequential relationship between the idea of the set of logged in users and a particular set, a particular value. Okay. And that that only requires a little atomic data structure, right? Which is a reference to the value. And you can give, and that's the thing whose whose contents change. So let me try to recap. Um, you, you, closure provides something called an atom, right? That's one of the possible things, yes. right? And an atom is a wrapper around a value where, of course, the value in the wrapper can change over time. It provides an identity and it ensures sequential access to the wrapped data. Right. Right, so I would I would take that one level higher. So Adam is an example of one of Closure's Agreed. reference type, one okay. of Closure's reference types. Mm-hmm. And so the reference types are all about the same problem. They're about giving you a tool for representing identity, and giving you a tool for managing time and the succession of states associated with an identity. Okay, give give us an example. How, how does that work? 
So uh, you can imagine uh, these references to be a little box, mm-hmm. right? And and in the box is a value, and by value we mean something that can't change. Right. So the set of logged in users will be a box. Inside the box, at any particular point in time, will be a, an immutable set data structure. Mm-hmm. And when you want to add a user, you're going to take that immutable value. You're going to call a function on it produce another immutable value, which is that set with one more user in it, and want to associate that new value with the identity, which is the set of logged in users. Okay, but, but if two people do that at the same time from different threads, then you run into concurrency issues. Except that these reference types have concurrency semantics. Aha. That's their job. Okay. Uh, so so the, the trick is to separate the two problems. So we're no longer talking about the problem of actually modifying a collection to put another thing in it. Yep. yep. That's it. Th- those are functions on values. What we yep. really are left with is just a problem of saying, how do we go from one state to the next where each state is a value? Okay. Uh, without, without colliding with each other. And how, how does and this... Go ahead. Yeah. Go ahead. I was just going to say, how, how does this feel from an API perspective? I mean, what do I do? I mean, I have, I have such an atom here, one of those reference data types. Okay. And I want to... How, what do I do? So if you have really any of the reference types, they all have the same uh, shape to the interaction. In other words, there's a single model for, for changing state. Mm-hmm. And that is given some reference uh, in which there's a value you want to change, you're going to pass that reference a function, which is a function of the value that's in there, okay. possibly some additional arguments. The mm-hmm. reference type itself is responsible for taking the function you've given it and applying it to the value and making the return value of that function the next state of that reference. Right. And, and the, re- the reference type makes sure that only one of these functions is executed at any time. Correct. So, of course, this implies that you have to have first-class functions in your language. Sure. yeah. Right, so you can pass a function to... Yeah. Uh, in, in, in. And then, then there are different semantics possible for um, how and when the change will occur. Mm-hmm. So the change could be synchronous or it could not be synchronous, right? Mm-hmm. You, could, you could ask for a function to be applied to the value and want to know when the, that call returns that it's happened. Yep, yep, yep. Or you'd be happy to say, please do this eventually and go on. Mm-hmm. That would be the asynchronous case. Yep. So there are differences there. There are differences with whether or not the um, the change you want to make impacts only one reference, or involves the coordination of changing more than one reference. Okay, so then you uh, have probably another wrapper around those that coordinates it. Well, there are different kinds of references that have the different semantics. Okay. So now mm-hmm. we could talk about the three main kinds. Okay. Atoms are the simplest. They're synchronous, and they're atomic. They can only a, a a unit of work can only involve one atom at a time. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, Agents are like atoms. They're uh, atomic. You can only impact one agent at a time, Mm -hmm. but they're asynchronous. So when you send an agent a function, um, that will happen at some point in the future. That call returns immediately. Mm -hmm. Okay. And the agent will process all the uh, actions, they're called, that it's been sent um, in a a thread pool Mm -hmm. sometime later but it will ensure that they're performed serially. And finally, the most complex reference type is, is actually called a ref. Mm-hmm. 
And uh, a ref can only be changed inside a transaction. Ah, okay. And refs are both synchronous and they're coordinated. So mm -hmm. you can have a unit of work that involves more than one ref, which is what you would need, for instance, in order to take something out of one collection and put it into yeah. another collection. So you would open uh, a, tra a transaction and uh, modify the two refs within it. Correct. Okay. Uh, so this is a nice system in that uh, you've sort of you've moved everything into pure functions. So when you want, for instance, to test your function for adding something to a set, um, you don't have any state. You don't have to mock up anything. and You don't have to create a certain state in the world because that's a pure function. Mm -hmm. uh, so testing the, your functions is all uh, very simple. They don't involve the state. And then you have the separate problem of, okay, well, now I want to send that function into one of the reference types to be performed uh, safely in a concurrent environment. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, so the two problems have been separated. Uh, and that you can make all these different semantics look exactly the same. They all look precisely the same. The, the state transition models um, are all identical. Pass mm -hmm. a function to the reference. Yeah. Uh, so, so that's why uh, one buzzword that I hear around closure is that it has transactional memory. That's exactly this, this thing. This last, the last yes. kind of reference type, yes. the refs yes. are implemented using right uh, transactional memory, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. And I guess we've had an episode on this topic before. Also, I didn't look up the number, so you have to find that out for yourself. So, um, yeah, uh, although I would say that Clojure's approach to software transactional memory is very different okay. from what you might see in papers and uh, in in discussions about software transactional memory. In which way? Uh, a lot of people are working on software transactional memory with the objective of allowing you to take your existing uh, uh, code mm -hmm. that manipulates objects mutably yep. and just wrap that with transactions mm -hmm. in order to eliminate needing to do locking. Um, I personally am not fond of that approach. I don't think it's going to work. Mm -hmm. um, this approach I've mentioned with closures is very different. Yeah. Um, it, it, it emphasizes programming with values, right, and using pure functions. Uh, it emphasizes using values for aggregates, so the granularity is much coarser. Yeah, um, and uh, and it uses multi-version concurrency control under the hood, and, so it's it's pretty different. Yeah, and you also expose the fact that some data is mutable through transactions to the programmer. So you don't attempt any kind of transparency. No, no, I think transparency is bad. Yeah, yeah, I, I would probably agree. Yeah, right. So, so that's the, right. So wouldn't I mean? I mean, okay, I'm I'm kind of putting words into your mouth now. <laughs> um, <laughs> assuming that um, this reasonable support for time, values, identity, and concurrency has been one of the main drivers for building closure, wouldn't if wouldn't it have been possible or simpler? To attach to add this using uh, you know some kind of library or framework to an existing language. In other words, why does this kind of stuff need language support as opposed to just a library? Uh, it, in fact, it is a library. Okay, uh, it's a library written in Java that you can use from Java. Okay, um, the whole thing about a language is um, you know what a, a language is about. What does it make idiomatic and easy? Mm -hmm. So, for instance, you can use precisely the same reference types and the STM and the data structures of Clojure 
all from Java. Yeah, of course, but you'll die because you have to write all kinds of an anonymous inner classes to represent the functions, right? There's the function <laughs> part, right? There's the lack of enigmatic uh, library support. Yeah. Um, for you know, for for instance, with programming with values, you have to reassign them to something. Um, so that's not idiomatic, right? Uh, yeah. And so the lack of idioms and and language support means using exactly the same constructs, the same underlying code from Java yeah. is extremely painful compared to Clojure, where it's it is the natural idiom. Yeah. Um, and and it's what you're doing by default. I mean when you use Clojure and you use Clojure's data structures, you're programming this way always. Yeah. It's not something you superimpose later. And yeah. and with, that's a good thing because when you discover you need or desire you know to add concurrency um, you don't have to change everything in your program. You're already doing the right thing. Yeah, actually, I I really liked your definition of what a language is because I, I struggle with that all the time. Since I work a lot with domain-specific languages, and people always mm. ask me what's the difference between a language and an API, and why do I need the language? I can express everything with you know insert X whatever here. And this thing about making things idiomatic or or making the right things simple to express, right? That's right. that's a very good definition. Right. Yeah. So that that's the key thing, and that's why all these independent pieces of closure, um, you know, are designed together uh, mm -hmm. to make all the different parts, you know, work well. Mm -hmm. One last technical question before we uh, probably talk about uh, more community and adoption stuff. Um, another way of handling state in purely functional immutable languages are monads. Um, I think we've talked about this concept before on SE Radio in Eric Meyer's episode, I think. Um, does this play a role in, in, your, in your closure language thing? Um, there are libraries for that. I think that um, monads don't fundamentally solve the identity problem. Mm -hmm. In other words, you can't use a monad for the set of logged in users in yeah. a long running program across multiple parts of your program. Yeah. Yeah. All right. And, and that's why Haskell has uh, an STM mm -hmm. and MVARs. Um, it has those things because that's how you get multiple independent threads of control to coordinate. A monad is about one thread of control. Right. Monad has nothing to do with concurrency. Yes. Correct. Mm -hmm. And so, so. So you can't use the same construct for the two different jobs yeah. in, in Haskell. So I'm not sure that's always going to be the right construct then. Mm -hmm. okay. uh, also, it's uh, while there are libraries for closure, I think um, the concept is much more powerful in a language like Haskell where the type system is yes. helping a lot. Yeah, I mean, maybe that was my question. Is your type system aware of monads? And, and so the answer is no, and no. therefore it's yeah, not idiomatic to use them. <laughs> No, no. Of course, with macros, I mean, it can be made yeah. okay. Yeah. Uh, but the the main thing that Haskell has going for it is that you know because it can do inference on return types. Yeah, yeah. And um, exactly. that's a particularly critical feature for monads. Uh, closure, closure is dynamically typed, right? So then there is the, the you, you you wouldn't be able to 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 do the monad type inference thing anyway, right? Well, it, cl closure does do local inferencing. Okay. Um, for instance, you know, uh, in order to get to get to get calls to Java to work without reflection, mm, yeah, um, we'd need to know the types. Yeah, uh, but you'll find in Closure you need to specify far fewer types than you would in Java, because once it knows a little bit, it's able to infer 
the result of this call is of this yeah. type, which means this next call is taking this type of arguments, et cetera, et cetera. So then is it duct typed or is it statically typed? Uh, <laughs> those are that's a binary choice. <laughs> well, but if it's if it's uh if it's well, I mean type inference done by the compiler, I wouldn't call that duct typing. I would just call that a compiled language or statically checked with 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 uh with in type inference support. So well, you know, the, the differences are they come down to enforcement, right? So if I can figure out through inference what's happening, mm -hmm. I can generate better code. Yes. If I can't, I'm not going to preclude it, which means that you'll get okay. reflective code at runtime, ah. which may discover, uh, which may discover that you know the, there's no method with that name. Okay, but that means that I can specify type information in closure, and if it's present, I get statically compiled code as opposed to the reflection-based code. Again, it, it had, you have to be very precise. You will get code that's compiled with particular types and runs exactly identical to Java. Yes. On the other hand, you won't get um, uh, code that precludes you passing different types. Okay. In other words, it's not a it's not a mechanism. Uh, it's a mechanism only for optimization. Right. Okay. That's the not point. for not for precluding uh, certain expressions. Okay. But so again, it's not type checking. Okay, but you can specify types and then the compiler uses them to generate more efficient code, assuming they're correct. Right, for the Java interop portion, that's right. correct. Ah, okay. Mm -hmm. Good, is there anything technical about the language that I forgot to ask that you would like to mention? Uh, technical? Yeah, like cool language features, you know, technical <laughs> as opposed to adoption community, where can people find uh, resources? No, no. I mean, I think actually at the at the core of, of Clojure, technically, it's very, very, very simple. Mm -hmm. and, and in fact, that, that would be the, the biggest thing I'd want people to understand about it is that it's, it is extremely simple at, at its computational core. There's not, there are not a lot of rules. There are not a lot of syntactic things. There's... <laughs> Uh, and and it's less even about syntax. It really computationally is extremely simple. Mm -hmm. Okay, so then let's talk about the, you know, the soft stuff. <laughs> so, okay. um, how is Clojure doing regarding adoption and in the general, let's say, language zoo that has developed on the JVM in the last two or three years? Uh, I I think it's doing remarkably well considering it's the most recent <laughs> entry. Mm -hmm. um, the mailing list on uh, Google Groups is now up to 3,300 members. Wow. Mm -hmm. So uh, there's pretty significant um, adoption and utilization. Um, their people are now getting jobs and closure. It's being used by companies. and mm -hmm. um, It started in startups, but it's definitely seeing some applications in other areas for analytics and uh, various other things, financial there, companies. and Are there any typical usage scenarios? I mean, you know, things for which the way closure works is especially, well, concurrency, I guess, but is especially well-suited? Uh, well, you know, I think what one of the great things for me to have seen is that, you know, it was designed to be a general-purpose language, mm -hmm. and it's seeing wide applications in vastly different okay. domains. Okay, okay. Um, one area, I, if, if I were to try to pick something out that seems, seems to me to be the first area that's kind of hot, um, would be uh, like the Flightcaster use of, of Clojure, which they used it for machine learning, mm -hmm. um, running on you know, Hadoop on, on clusters, and uh, 
their libraries have been integrated with some other statistical libraries for closure uh, called Encanter. Mm-hmm. And uh, it seems to be a hot area now where people doing analytics that would traditionally have used R and then had to hand their code to programmers to mm-hmm. move into production uh, could use Clojure to do that work, uh, to work with large data from the get-go, you know, and to be able to hand their models directly to people that you know, for use in production. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's an area that seems to be booming. But it's also been used for web stuff and database stuff and messaging systems. And but, but it's probably fair to say that it can play out its benefits especially well if it's um, algorithmically non-trivial concurrent stuff. There is that, although I think you might find that the, the concurrency part is used less often right. than you might imagine. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I wouldn't say that that's its, its only trick. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's an extremely expressive language. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, it, and, and, it, and it does let you tap into the JVM uh, inf- you know, ecosystem. So there's a huge number of libraries available. Um, and people are extremely productive with it. Mm-hmm. And that, I think, yeah. is what's, what matters. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, a book is available, right, by Stuart Holloway? Yes. So uh, people can read that. Yes, um, there are two, two more books on the way. Ah, okay. And they can get early access um, versions from Manning. Mm-hmm. Uh, one is called uh, Closure in Action. And the other one is called uh, The Joy of Closure. And are you writing one of those? Nope. <laughs> no? Okay, I'm surprised. I mean, I would I'm expect... writing Closure. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well... <laughs> Maybe well. at some point, but uh, so far I'm too busy. Okay, well, I guess that's that's a good sign. I mean, whatever. Um, okay. Um, so, uh, so, yeah, so the community is great. Uh, the mailing list is, is large. Uh, we always have, let me see, right now we have 232 people on the IRC well, mm-hmm. channel. Cool. Mm-hmm. Um, these are other just kind of metric things, so it's a, it's easy to get help. Everybody's very friendly. Um, it's easy to get started. Good, cool, very nice. So I guess the only problem, quote problem, is to find a customer, at least in my case, who who would want me to use Clojure instead of mainstream stuff, which is, I guess, at least in some environments, still uh, a challenge. I guess to to convince non you know, the, the somewhat more conservative people. Well, tell me you want to use this new Java library called Clojure. <laughs> <laughs> yes. It, it comes in a jar like all the others. Yeah, and... yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Good trick. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, the, the adoption will play out at different rates in different industries, you know, depending on the level of, you know, conservatism and yeah. what people are doing. And yeah. uh, But it has been interesting to see it used... Uh, Pretty widely already. Mm-hmm. Um, is there tool support? You know, IDE syntax highlighting and that kind of stuff. Absolutely, it's uh, it's actually really good. Um, there's a, of course, there's Emacs support if you're if you like Emacs. <laughs> yeah. uh, it's traditionally been a great place for Lisp, yeah. uh, but if you like more traditional IDEs, um, there's a very good support for NetBeans. It's a mm-hmm. project called Enclosure, um, which is uh, it's great. It has completion for Closure and Java, you know, mm-hmm. very good integration with Java. Mm-hmm. Um, syntax highlighting, the REPLs built into the IDE. Cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, similarly, uh, IntelliJ has good closure support. Mm-hmm. 
know, Clojure is a recognized project type. It's, uh, you know, it comes from the IntelliJ guys, mm-hmm. um, and they've done a really good job. Um, somewhat newer and, and uh, less developed, but up and coming is uh, Eclipse support. Mm-hmm. Okay. So a bunch of a bunch of uh, options. I guess if you have those three, then you're 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 set. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and uh, and then of course, Closure participates in the general inf- infrastructure for bytecode on the JVM. Mm-hmm. So debuggers and profilers for Java work with Closure on source code level. Uh, yeah. Cool. Very good. Okay, um, I guess that's all I had prepared. Is there anything else you want to add, or? Uh... Uh, no, I would just encourage people to try it out. Yep, yep. And uh, for sure, you know, join the join the Google group, and uh, and the IRC if you're trying it out. And there's there's plenty of uh, of help. Cool, very good. So then, um, thank you very much for being on the show. Thanks for having me. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to Software Engineering Radio. Software Engineering Radio is an educational program brought to you by Hillside Europe. If you want more information about the podcast and all the other episodes, visit our website at se-radio.net. If you want to support us, you can donate to the SE Radio team via the website, or you can advertise for SE Radio, for example, by clicking on the Dick Reddit Delicious links and the slash dot button. To contact the team, please send email to team at se-radio.net or if it is specific to an episode, please use the comments facility on the website so other people can react to your comments. This episode of SE Radio, as well as all other episodes, are licensed under the Creative Commons 2.5 license. Please see the website for details. Thanks to Charlie Crow and the Podsife Music Network for the music used in this show. The song is called Vegas Hard Rock Shuffle.